We're back in Acts 7. We're going to begin with verse 52. I added those two verses, 52, 53, onto my next PowerPoint because we didn't get to them last time. Acts 7, I'm going to read right now 52, 53. Stephen is preaching to the Jewish leadership who are opposed to the gospel. Here's what Stephen said. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now this preaching is going to lead to Stephen's martyrdom. But he accuses them of persecuting anyone who stood in the line of Abraham and the true prophets. Let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather Thank you. We have a place today here to gather. And may your word penetrate into our hearts. And may we be like those who believe the prophets and not like those who killed the prophets. May our hearts be tender and our minds attuned to what you're saying that we may believe and obey and live lives pleasing to you. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on in. Acts 7.52. Now, I've mentioned this before, but it's important and it's intentional that as Stephen's been preaching, when it came to some of the previous material, he used the phrase, our fathers. Okay? But now, when it comes to the rejection of Christ, he changes and says, your fathers. When it came to corporate guilt from Israel's past, Stephen was willing to own it. He was like the others who wouldn't listen and who rejected the message of the true prophets. But then God sent Messiah. And Stephen believed in Messiah. And so now his guilt is forgiven. And he now stands in solidarity with believers and with Abraham and with the true prophets. So the term changes from our fathers to your fathers because the Jewish leadership is rejecting Messiah and Stephen is not. Okay? So that's what's going on here. And I have Eric here to read for me. My voice, well, for whatever reason, isn't as strong as I wish it was. Could you turn, Eric, to Matthew 23 and read... 29 through 36. What I'm going to 
have Eric show you by reading Matthew 23, which is quoting Jesus, is that Stephen, in his sermon, is following the same pattern as Jesus when Jesus rebuked wicked leadership in Israel. So let's hear what Jesus said that led to his crucifixion. Matthew 23, 29 to 36. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, who would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets? Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Wow. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. But we see in that section of Matthew 23 the same reasoning. This is very Jewish. You need to understand this to understand the preachers in Acts and to understand Jesus. He said in 29, you build the tombs. And so they're saying, oh, we love the prophets. We love the righteous ones. We commemorate their great ministry. And Jesus said, well, you say we wouldn't have been like the ones that killed the prophets. We would have been the good guys. Why? Because in our mind, we're the good guys. And then he says in 31, but you testify against yourself. You're the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Here is Stephen's debate with the Sanhedrin. You need to know this terminology, sons of. Whose father are you going to identify with? Now, this has to do with the moral qualities, not genetics. He's not saying you're not genetically Jewish. Everybody involved is Stephen, Jesus, the leaders. But who, son, are you spiritually? And because you reject Jesus, and because you reject his disciples, and because you're rejecting the truth being preached by Stephen, you prove that you're sons of the ones who killed the prophets. So they're building their monuments all the while imitating the ones who killed them. Jesus indicted the Jewish leadership in Matthew 23. And then he says in 23-32, fill up the measure of the guilt of your fathers. He says, you serpents, vipers, sentence of hell. Wow. So the debate was who's a son of whom? 
And the way you're a son of the prophets is by believing the true messengers of God. So how are they supposed to know that Jesus was the true messenger of God? Well, if you don't believe for all the signs and wonders he did, will you believe when God raises a man from the dead? And God did raise Jesus from the dead. And they knew it. And they tried to cover up that fact. So the whole debate that leads to Stephen's martyrdom is about corporate solidarity. Do you have anything, Eric? You know, one thing I was going to mention, and this comes from one of your articles, Bob, that you wrote about this generation. Does everyone see that in Matthew 23? Uh, is it 36? 23, 36. Yeah, where he says all these things will come upon this generation. This generation, remember that. So this generation is used not for a time period, but it's used as a pejorative to talk about a kind of people. And it's very important for our eschatology because some, when Jesus says all these things will come upon this generation, some people thought that that limited, that all of God's judgment had to come by, you know, 40, 50 years from then. But this generation isn't used for a 40, 50, 60, 80-year time period. It's used to show corporate solidarity with the prophets of old. Everyone who rejects the the prophets and disbelieves God is part of this generation. So you might have lived in Abraham's day or you might live right now. If you disbelieve God's word, you're part of this generation. Exactly. So if you look at what's going on in Acts 7, Stephen is no longer part of this generation. It doesn't mean he was alive during a certain 40-year time period. It means that he's believing God's prophet, Jesus, whom they crucified. So it's a moral category, not a chronological one. And if you're interested, as Eric pointed out, I wrote an article about this 10, 15 years ago, called This Generation. Interestingly, some amillennialists who, of course, reject that idea, a few of them try to debate me via email, but they have nothing to go on. They have to ignore the evidence. They want to force everything into their scheme, and they won't even look at something like this when it's biting them. What is this? Oh, that's not important. Well, what was Jesus talking about? Everybody alive when he's preached that? No, the ones who shared the corporate guilt by rejecting God's prophets. This isn't even hard to understand. One guy wrote me and said, you got to be wrong because I never heard this before. (laughs) What does it say? What does it say? What did Jesus say? What did Stephen say? And so, if you can't understand the Jewish idea of corporate guilt, you're not going to understand the preaching of the apostles. Let's look at Acts 7.52. Stephen says this, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Now remember, when all this happened... There were people who believed the prophets, and there were people who persecuted them. 
So the issue about your fathers isn't about who's alive during some 40-year period, but who believes the prophets and who lives accordingly. It's a moral issue, not a chronological one. And if you refuse to listen to the true gospel, then you're like the false prophets. Okay? They killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. They were more than willing to own the guilt of killing Messiah because their unbelief was so great. They just wanted to be rid of him. That's fine. Let his blood be on our heads and head of our children's. They're willing to own it. Stephen wasn't. Now he says, your fathers, you own this one because I believe in Jesus. Stephen will soon see Jesus standing at the right hand of God, ready to welcome him into glory. Stephen believed in Jesus. Uh, Eric, this Eric over here, could you read Acts 3, 14 and 15? Let's just see how Peter and the other apostles preached and how this idea of corporate guilt was central to their dispute with the Jewish leadership. You said 13 and 14? Yeah, uh, three, no, Acts 3, 14 and 15. Oh, okay. Uh, But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Amen. Isn't that right? They said, give us Barabbas. Give us a murderer. We don't care if our nation's filled with wicked murderers, but we want to be rid of this righteous one. We want him gone. Mike Kaufman, could you look up Zechariah 7, 11, and 12? Zechariah 7, 11, and 12. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder. They closed their ears so they could not hear. They made their hearts like a rock so as not to obey the law or the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. Therefore... Great anger came from the Lord of hosts. Yeah, they plugged their ears. We don't want to hear anybody telling us the truth. They covered their ears. Now, let's all turn together. I'll read this one. I want you to see the narrative unity of Luke Acts. We're going to go to Luke 4, 18 and read this pericope. And we're going to see that they wanted to do to Jesus what they will end up doing to Stephen. Okay, so follow with me. Luke 4, starting with verse 18. Jesus is offering release from sins. Aphasis in the Greek, release. Okay, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, says Jesus, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. poor. 
He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. By the way, that was the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee is fulfilled in Christ, the 50-year release for everybody. Verse 20, he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? So Jesus is claiming scripture is fulfilled in him. Now, verse 23, Luke 4. And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do it here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months. A great famine came over the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha, the prophet. None of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. And now it goes from gracious words to rage. They're filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up, drove him out of the city, and led him to the brow of the hill on which the city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Now, let me explain their practices. When they stoned somebody, and I just found this in my research recently here when I researched the stoning of Stephen they would do what they did with, wanted to do with Jesus put somebody down and they would get the biggest boulder that they could manage and drop it on them and the idea was that the boulder would kill the person just like that instantly they weren't trying to carry out a prolonged torture they wanted an execution. And so dropping a boulder on somebody would accomplish that. So they wanted in Nazareth to stone Jesus right there and kill him. That's what their intent was. But they, it didn't happen. Why not? Well, for one thing, Scripture has to be fulfilled. And according to the Scripture... Jesus was going to be crucified. That's how he would die. And it would be a little bit later. 
And so what we see with Stephen is a mob action to kill one of the prophets of God, Stephen himself. And that's what they wanted to do to Jesus. And what was Jesus' crime? He told them they needed to be released from their sins because they owned corporate guilt and their own guilt. He preached the year of Jubilee. He preached release from sins. So they wanted to kill him. Rather that he would die than that we would admit we needed forgiveness. Now you see this going on throughout the Gospels. One of them that's interesting is in John, where uh, in John 8, he offers them freedom. The sons have freedom. If the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And they became outraged and said, we've never been in bondage to anybody. Who are you to tell us we need freedom? Who are you to tell us we need to be forgiven? Who are you to tell us we need to repent? So whenever they were faced with their own guilt, they wanted to kill somebody. And that happened in John 8 as well. They wanted him dead. So the righteous one is Christ. And so we have this kind of preaching. Verse 53 of Acts 7. Who received the law by the direction of angels have not kept it. One of the ideas that the Jews cherished was that the law had been given and mediated by angels. Now, if you read the Masoretic version of Exodus, you don't really see angels on Sinai. But the belief that angels mediated the law was widespread, and the New Testament authors affirmed it. There may be things that we only know from the New Testament, but rather than saying, no, it wasn't angels, the New Testament writers would uh, agree with them that angels had to do with the giving of the law. Okay? But the fact that they refused to keep it and they rebelled was what caused them to be angry and outraged and they refused to repent. They rejected Moses. And so at issue here was who was being faithful to Moses? Jesus, Peter, Stephen, later Paul when he repented, or the Jewish leadership. This was the battle. Jesus and his followers were saying that the Jewish leadership was in rebellion against Moses. Moses taught in Deuteronomy 18.15 that God would raise up a prophet like Moses and that when he did, they must listen to him. The Christians claimed that that was Jesus. And they couldn't accept that because then they were guilty. What about forgiveness? 
Yes, there is forgiveness. All they had to do was say, we did rebel against Moses. We have broken the law of God. We have a lot of guilt. And we need forgiveness. And Jesus came offering release from sins. And we can receive that if we believe it. Or we can kill the messengers. Now, Eric, could you read Acts 3, 18 to 23? It says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Amen. So heaven must receive until. Is he saying that there's future hope? What do you think, Eric? Yeah, amen. There's absolutely future hope. And we also see this idea of filling up. There's only so many saints that are going to come to the Lord. So repent, therefore he'll send the Lord who's appointed for you. In Matthew 23, he said, you, the bad ones, are filling up wrath. So there's a filling up of wrath. There's a filling up of wrath and a filling up of salvation. Yeah, amen. And at some point, both are full. And then he says Jesus for the second coming. But earlier in Acts 6, let me read Acts 6, 12 and 13 as a little reminder. They stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes. So they came, dragged him off, and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, this man does not stop speaking blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. So they accused him of being a blasphemer. So in their mind, makes him worthy of death. But it says in uh, Acts 6, 5, talking about the law received by angels, Stephen's face was like that of an angel. And the author, Luke, is telling us they were receiving the law, the law of Christ, and they want to kill him. And they accuse him of being a blasphemer. Was Stephen like an angel or was he a blasphemer? He was preaching Christ. And then in Acts 6, 14 and 15, it says, For we heard him say that Jesus, this Nazarene, will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him, saw his face like that of an angel. I think I had the wrong reference here. Could somebody see the angel references at 15 or 5? 15. 15, yeah. I made a mistake. Can you imagine? (laughs) 
I can't. 15, typo. Well, they're going to reject another one. Now, look at what happened. This is going to remind us of what happened in Luke 4. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Bob. Um, just from reading that passage, that Acts 6, 14, and 15, you had brought up something a while back when we were doing radio together, and I thought it was interesting. The charge against Jesus was that he was going to change the customs of Moses. Yes. And what we were discussing once is, well, what if someone wanted to change the customs of Christ? And it was asked to another person, but you addressed it, and I think you did a good job. And it boils down to the fact that in Deuteronomy 18, Moses had prophesied that he was going to have a replacement. But there's no replacement for Christ. That's yeah. never prophesied. Christ never said, somebody's like me is going to come. Amen. Listen to them. Okay, why do we need to know that? So we don't become Mormon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, the Mormons say, oh, there's always going to be another one. So we have another one, another testament. But what they get wrong is that Moses predicted Christ, but Christ predicted this is it until he returns himself. We don't look for any new prophet like Moses or Jesus. We look for the Holy One to return at the end of the age. So the Mormons... Can you believe all the people who commit to that wicked religion? That's absurd. It's irrational. It doesn't fit with history or logic or anything. And people turn their brains off and just sign up and let the Mormon church run their lives. They become slaves. And they don't ask any questions. Now notice here, when they heard these things, they were enraged. The word in the Greek means sawn through. They couldn't refute Stephen. He was too right on. He was too biblical. He was too logical. He was too rational. And so they just emote. They become enraged. See, when people lose the argument, that's when emotions take over. And they get really angry. And they start shouting. It says in Acts 7.51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. And so, this grinding of the teeth, by the way, is terminology that's used for hell. Luke 13, 28. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but you're cast out. So the gnashing of the teeth in Luke Acts, according to this, is a little down payment for hell. They are experiencing now what it'll be like when they're thrown into hell. 
Only they're doing it right now. They're gnashing their teeth. They are so angry. It's not good. It's not good. We need to listen. Those who have been judged. Now, you look at this. I wanted to drive this home. I don't think this gets taught enough. And uh, I had a couple of great teachers in seminary that were able to do this and to show us the importance of corporate solidarity and how these speakers like Stephen go back through Israel's history and this Dr. Parsons calls this syncresis. It's a technique. So you go back and who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Right? In our pride. See, it's human nature in our fallenness to no matter what we're like, think we're the good guys. You heard my story about my old buddy, the prison guard, and they were showing Bronson movies to the prisoners, and Bronson's killing all the bad guys, and the prisoners, now this is over at Oak Park Heights, these were the worst, the murderers, the, the, the incorrigible, and they're going, yay, kill them, kill them, and my buddy Vince says, what's wrong with you guys, don't you know that's you, that Bronson is killing, and they said, oh, no, we were never that bad. <laughs> We're not so bad. So our mind deceives us so that whether we're right with God or not, our mind is saying, I'm like Abraham. I'm, I'm like Joseph. And we, we may be like the Egyptians. We may be like Joseph's brothers. But self-deception causes us to not see that. And when somebody like Stephen says, you are like the one who killed the prophets, the reaction is rage. We've got to kill this Stephen. So, uh, can this change? Yes. I believe in God's greater grace, and I believe in repentance. How do we know it can change? See, if you're reading Luke Acts, you might be thinking right now, oh man, it never changes. They killed Jesus. They, they said crucify him. It never changes. But Luke is prepared right here and right now in this pericope to tell us it can change. Because one of the people who was enraged. And one of the people who wanted Stephen dead was Saul. He's right there. And he is one who's enraged and he takes off to have the Christians thrown in prison or even killed. Saul's conversion stands in Luke Acts. Remember, it's a two-volume work. You need to study it all and see how Luke writes. Volume 1, Volume 2. Saul's conversion says people can 
change by God's grace alone. Mike. I just think we, uh, when, when we talk about change, what you're referring to here is Paul changed. He repented. He changed. What we hear a lot uh, nowadays is that God will change his mind if we repent. And that's a huge dis th I that's the Lord not the case. Shall not change not. not. That's right. Malachi 3.6. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, but I just heard on the radio yesterday that God, if we pray for America, God can change his mind, you know, and he will not judge America. I mean, is there someone by we all, we all know? <laughs> yeah. Well, if it's always conditional, right? I mean, if we repent, then he has mercy on us, but he's not changing his mind. You know, he does not. His so purposes go forward. Correct. See, well, if you no, read it all, Mike, uh, if you read that, everything, right. you find out that the conversion of Saul was God's purpose all along. And people do bring up the Nineveh with, with, uh, with Jonah. Right. Yeah. But see, even at that, Jonah knew that God was planning to have mercy on Nineveh. That's why he didn't want to go. He, did he not figured change. if God wanted to judge them, he doesn't need me. <laughs> Amen. Good. Thank you. I just wanted to bring that up. Well, y you could extrapolate what he's saying and say no matter what happens at any period in time, God, with his foreknowledge, already knew so in that sense, he's not changing. Everything is going to happen exactly the way that he planned. No ifs, ands, or buts. That, well, that's true. But there's what we know and what we don't know. And what we're commanded to do. What don't we know? Well, for one thing, America is a pagan nation. So what else is new? All the nations are pagan. God draws out the boundaries. But from, excuse me, but from within each nation, God saves persons to be representative. A few here and a few there. What we don't know is who that is. We don't know who's going to be saved. And we don't know. God draws out the boundaries of the nations according to his sovereign will. That's true. Paul preached it in Acts 17. God draws out the boundaries of the nations. But what Paul did was he called for repentance. The Athenians were uh, idolaters when Paul went there. We'll get there eventually when I get through this. Eventually we'll get to Paul in Athens. And you might say, well, it was hopeless in Athens. No, some people were saved there. Even a handful of pagan philosophers saved is a miracle. Right? And there were some. They were mentioned. So, dear ones, what do we know on the scene of history? God is calling all men everywhere to repent. What do we know about America? America is pagan. What kind of message we have? God is calling people to repent. Preach the gospel. Because we don't know who the next Saul of Tarsus might be. 
cake. We don't know. But I'll tell you this. Turning on the TV sometimes when I'm getting ready on Sunday morning and I hear America's preachers, it's an utter waste of time. Garbage. Nonsense. Worthless. Foolishness. How to be happy. How to make your wife happy. Everybody's got that figured out anyhow, right? (laughs) Well, they're not telling people who Christ is, what he did, why we need him, and what he expects of us. We think that if we can just have some psychology and positive thinking, we can have better living through religion. Okay. I was going to say this, the same thing is true about what God's done in my life because he was the one that chose me beforehand and yet, you know, he used the Bible, he used, you know, teachers like my brothers in Christ like you and and ultimately, you know, I, I made the decision, but it was God that made the decision. It's God's grace. That, yeah, Amen. But see, we still need... Th- yeah, thank you, Eric. You know what's great? I love this. We need to preach with the same urgency. True gospel preachers are not ones who think, well, God's going to save the elect, so why should I worry about it? Stephen know, know that God was going to save the elect, but look at the passion. Look, look at the skill. Look at the scripture. Look at the convicting words. Look at bringing people face to face with their own sin and their need for forgiveness. We have examples in the Bible. And we see that later with Peter. We're going to see it with Paul. And so knowing that God's going to save some doesn't mean we become complacent. I want to be the best preacher I can be given what voice I have. You know, so I try to not yell at anybody. So I got some voice on Sunday. And, uh, yeah, they're not worth yelling at. They're not any good. Why? Why is it like that? One thing I notice, if you put all this theology together, God has ordained that we have the joy of making decisions. He works it all out. But we plan, we decide, we pray. Evangelists, for example, go over to whether to make them all or somewhere. God's going to save who he's going to save. But we, have, we get to participate. We get to pray for the people going. The people going get to plan what they're going to say and where they're going to go and how they're going to reach out to people. And God can teach people too. But I get to do this. Okay? As long as I'm here, I consider it a great joy. And I want to do the best I can so that people get it. And I know that God uses it to sanctify us. That's what's going on here. Anybody reading Acts would have to look at Stephen and see what he's doing. You have Abraham. You have Joseph. We have Moses. We have the true prophets. We have the righteous one. Christ and Stephen and then you have the bad people 
who stood against the ones God was blessing. Is there any good reason why Joseph's brothers hated him so much? No, but they did. It was their moral failing. But God used Joseph to save them. They didn't know, how could God be using this guy we hate to save us? Well, they found out later, didn't they? Well, let's go to the next verse. Acts 7.55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Wow. Now, don't forget, thematic, programmatic for Acts is Acts 1.8. But you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. That's what happens in Acts. The Holy Spirit comes upon people like Peter and they preach with power and authority. The Holy Spirit came upon Stephen and he saw the glory of God and he preached Christ. He preached Christ. The glory of God is an inclusio with Acts 7 2. Let me read it. And Stephen said, I'm reading Acts 7 2, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. So, He preached the glory of God with the Abraham narrative. And now Stephen gazes into heaven and he sees the glory of God. Eric, over here. Luke 9, 30 to 32, please. We want to look at this theme, glory of God. It says, and behold, two men were talking with him. This is on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. With him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Yeah. No, they didn't need three tents today. The glory of God tabernacled in Christ. And so Luke earlier in Luke chapter 9 talked about the glory of God in Christ. Here in Acts 7, Stephen sees the glory of God all the way into heaven. So we have a a big bookend. Mount of Transfiguration and Stephen gazing into heaven. So we have 
Jesus Christ, who is glorified, bodily raised, bodily ascended, who bodily sits at the right hand of God, and who's coming bodily again. Stephen sees him at the right hand of God, place of power and authority. Very important. You know, I just listened to a message somebody recommended by John MacArthur. Did you get a chance? Yeah, I listened to it. Very good. What did you think? I, I loved it. Why don't you tell about it? Yeah. Well, well, John MacArthur begins by, it's at the Shepherds Conference, and he gives encouragement to pastors to say, look, our role primarily is to teach theology. And the theologian in America is being really discounted. What most churches want is not a theologian, but an organizer, someone who visits people, etc. But they don't want a theologian. And so what MacArthur does is he goes into John 17 and he lays out how glorious Christ is and his love with the Father and how he saves his people. And uh, it's glorious about how he provides intercession constantly. The priesthood of Christ. The session of Christ. Yeah, MacArthur was saying that it's a terrible thing in America that we no longer expect pastors to be theologians. He says that's wrong. We should be. And then we should teach theology, which is something I've committed to for 30-some years. But I'm telling you, it's not the majority report. And I have been harshly criticized for doing this. And the criticism has been people don't want theology. They need help figuring out how to make decisions. And so the gr- people gravitate to the shepherding movement. But we came out of that back in the 70s. Some person telling you how to make your decisions. You should do this. Don't buy a Ford, buy a Chevy <laughs> or whatever. Don't take this job, take that job. And when I began teaching theology, there was pushback. And there was for years and years, but it didn't matter. I would not stop. I would not quit. And I've been spending 30-some years teaching theology. And so somebody told me how to get that CD from MacArthur. I thought, well, good. I'm not the only crazy one. (laughs) It was very encouraging. Go ahead. Well, I was just thinking on that last uh, bullet point, Jesus is the eschatological judge. Last uh, Sunday, in Sunday school, we finished up and we were talking about how the Lord says vengeance is mine and how we should leave it to the Lord. And I just thought, what a wonderful picture. It is the, you guys have been just drilling us with the promises of God and how we're supposed to be, you know, focusing on those. That is our perseverance, is trusting these promises. And whether we see it in this life or not, the Lord is our eschatological judge and all things will be made new with him. We don't have to be fighting every battle. But I just thought Stephen is a good example of that. Yes, he is the judge. That was a, the judge would stand. So implied in the standing is that Jesus is standing as the judge and he's affirming Stephen in standing against the rebellious leadership. Yes. Is there any significance 
to standing at the right hand of God versus yeah, that's seated. the idea of the judge. So he's he's standing and he's about to make uh, uh, the verdict. I'll let you answer it. Go to Zechariah three, one through four. Yes. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has been who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Standing is the posture posture. of judgment. Ah. So Jesus, well, here's another one, Eric. Isaiah 3.13. It says, the Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord stands to judge the people. So Jesus is standing as the eschatological judge who is going to vindicate Stephen by receiving him into his presence And Israel will come under judgment for rejecting Messiah. That's the significance of standing. MacArthur's sermon was about the high priestly ministry of Jesus. So many great truths there. He, Christ who justifies us and forgives our sins also continually advocates for us. He is a defense attorney, the best there ever was, the advocate with the Father who stands and advocates for us to be forgiven to be received, to be cared for, and to be brought all the way to glory. And if he is for us, who can be against us? The high priestly ministry of Jesus assures the salvation of all whom the Lord has given to him, who the Father gave to him. Let's finish with this. We got three minutes. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The Son of Man is a reference to Daniel 7 13 and 14. Eric, could you be our reader for that? Sure, no problem. Who has the other mic? Do you have a Bible? Could you read Psalm 110 and verse 1? 
This is Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that will not be destroyed. That's the Son of Man standing before God, the Messiah, right? As the Messiah. Psalm 110, 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Amen. So, question. Here it's here is sitting. So if, I'm not hearing you. So if standing is judgment, is sitting teaching, ruling? Is that well, posture for you that? No, it, it simply means that the scripture is fulfilled and Christ is there as our high priest. Okay. Well, I, I know for, for rabbis, that when they were teaching, they, they would, would always sit. They would sit and teach. Yeah. Well, his teaching is completed until the millennium. Okay. So I think we just need to see the intercessory ministry. Do you know anything about that differently? You know, I would, yeah, I would just affirm the, the sitting at the right hand. By the way, Psalm 110 is the most prolifically quoted Old Testament passage in the New, and the big picture is that Christ is reigning. He's at the right hand of God. Exactly. Being at the right hand of God is the position of authority and power, yep. and so he's the one who, who reigns and rules, Amen. even though we don't see it. So. Scripture's fulfilled. Amen. He's reigning and ruling. Well, let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, that we could be here. Thank you for these glorious truths. Help us to always believe your promises and live accordingly by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you and see you over there somewhere.